We come now to the preaching of God's Word. If you have a Bible, please open it to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 5. Um, we, we began last week talking about the subject of marriage and procreation. We're in a study of the book of, Cre- of, the book of Genesis, the first few chapters, and we're taking up in these coming weeks the creation ordinances, those things that were mandated by God in the creation even before the fall. And so we're thinking about today marriage, procreation, tying these two together, being fruitful and multiplying. And we're leaning on, as we began to last week, we're leaning on the Puritans. Now, these are men. They're not inspired. We don't want to exalt them to a level that is unhealthy. But it's been said that if you pricked them, they would bleed Bible. And these are men that were steeped in, in the Word of God. And they thought about the Word with such a depth and precision and experiential nature that I think is really unprecedented in the history of the church. And we said last week, as we were looking at the writings of William Gouge, we said last week that their teaching on Marriage was radical in their day, because in that day, we're speaking here about the 1600s, celibacy and virginity had been glorified to the most extreme faithful way that you could honor Christ was to be celibate and to not take a wife or a husband. This is why to this day the Roman Catholic priesthood is forbidden from marrying, because they see this as the highest way of honoring the Lord Jesus, one of the highest ways. But listen to what J.I. Packer has to say about their view of marriage. He says, The realism of their affirmations of matrimonial affection. Not coldness. You might hear the Puritans were joyless. Not joyless, but their affection in marriage stemmed from the fact that they went to the Bible for their understanding. They went to the Bible. So they found their theology and practice of marriage in the text of the scripture. Sadly, that was a novel thought, maybe, in that day. And he goes on. He says they went to Genesis for its institution, as we did last week. And they went to Ephesians for its full meaning, to Leviticus for its hygiene, to Proverbs for its management, to several New Testament books for its ethic, and to Esther, Ruth, and Song of Songs for illustrations and exhibitions of the ideal. And so we turn today to Paul's famous words in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading in verse 22, and we will read through the chapter. And so this is God's word for his church today. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a word that is living and active, that cuts to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, that it is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart of a man. And so we pray that you would use your word to cut through our unbelief, our doubt today. We pray that you would use your word to cut through the worldly constructs that we might have in our mind of what marriage is to be, that we might cut through, you might cut through the shallow view, the deficient view that we would have of marriage. Lord, we pray that you'd use your word to humble us today. Christ, would you be preached to your people? Would you be presented to your people today in glory and splendor that we might bow humbly before you and worship at your feet? That's our desire today, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us now. Still our thoughts, still our minds, still our distractions. Give us all a holy, attentive focus for this hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have, as I said, we've been in the creation account, and what we've begun to see is that there are themes and concepts that are there before the fall that do become distorted and frustrated by the fall into sin, but they are then redeemed by Christ and perfected in the new creation. We saw this when we, when we discussed Adam and Eve dwelling in the special presence of God. They were there in perfect unity, in harmony, in communion with the Lord. But sin happened and the fall happened and they were cursed and exiled from God's presence. But we saw almost immediately in the story of redemption, we saw almost immediately that God began to draw them ever so slowly and surely back to himself. Through the, through the land promise, through the tabernacle, through the temple, God had made a means by which man could dwell in his presence again and come near him and worship him without being destroyed because of sin. And then God the Son becomes a man, takes on our flesh. He tabernacles among us, walks among us. He indwells us with his spirit so that we can truly be the temple of the Spirit of God And in the state of glory, we will once again be perfected and united back into God's holy presence without sin. And we saw in Genesis 3 that there was a curse that fell upon all of humanity and all of creation because of sin. And the husband and wife relationship in that curse, we learn, is going to be challenged. It's going to be frustrated and difficult because of sin. The wife 
will at times have a tendency or a temptation to control her husband, to, to take charge and to resist his authority, to resist God's call to humble submission. And the man in his sin who is called to be a loving protector will at times be tempted to be harsh and to be cruel, to rule his helpmate in an ungodly, demeaning way. But praise be to God that the redeeming work of Christ is a work of curse reversal. That Jesus has come to undo all that was corrupted in the fall. And so what we see, I believe, today in Ephesians 5 is that Paul addresses very pointedly, he addresses those very weaknesses, those very points of contention and corruption that have been most impacted by the fall. He puts his finger square on them. And I think what he does here is brilliant and transformative because he shows us that the biblical commands, the biblical duties in a marriage point to something far higher and far greater than us. He says that the husband loves the wife and the wife's respect for her husband is meant to be a picture of Christ and his purchased church. And so my, my aim today, my purpose today is this, as we're thinking about marriage here, to give a, a theological foundation for the biblical duties and biblical commands within a marriage. That is, that we might have something to underpin those commands and a lens through which we can view them properly. That is, when the husband goes to the Bible, and brothers, you read the text and you learn and you know that that you have been commanded by God to love your wife unconditionally. To accept her with all of her sin and shortcomings. Not to throw those things in her face and belittle her and rehash the past over and over. But to receive her as she is. And to help her grow. You're reminded here that I do this because Jesus Christ has loved me unconditionally. He has accepted me as I am, sin and all, and He desires to help me grow and mature. And ladies, when you open up your Bibles and you, you read the challenging words that you are called by God to joyfully and willfully respect and submit to your own husband, that I should not be His greatest critic, but His greatest ally and helper, that you're reminded that you are to be a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. The church that joyfully and willingly submits to her Lord and desires to be his greatest ally and helper. And so what we're going to see today is five ways that marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. I've given you an outline. I wanted you to be able to take these with you, reflect, meditate on them as as you desire. Five ways that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Let me just say again, um, please don't check out here if you're not married or don't desire today to be married or have been married and see that in the past. But, but all of us need to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and His Word. And I want to exhort you that if you have a desire to marry, whether you're a child or an adult today, Study these things now. 
Better to learn now than, than on the fly, trust me. You, you want to have that foundation beforehand. Now, there's much that we can only learn in, in, in actually doing it. But to have a thoroughgoing biblical foundation, I think, is very helpful coming into a marriage, not after the fact. Also, I think it's worth noting that if you're a member here, we have taken covenant vows to pray for one another to have a burden for one another's souls and one another's lives. And so I exhort you to have a better framework here, if you are or are not married, to pray for those that are in this congregation, that this church be built up. So five ways that marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. The first is the headship of Christ is seen in the husband. The headship of Christ is seen in the husband. Verse 22 Again, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. He gives that, those clear words, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And so we want to do... Theology from above, our goal here today is not to look at some husband on this earth and say, see that man and how he loves his wife, that's what Jesus is like. That's backwards, right? We want to look to Christ and how he has led the church and how he loves the church and say, that's what the model of my husbanding and wifing, if you will, should look like. So how is Christ the head of the church? What does it even mean to be the head? Well, firstly, I think it's worth noting that there is only one head of the church. There cannot be more than one head on a body, and thus there is only one head of the church of Jesus Christ. He is her head. The church is his body. And how does Christ function as the head of the church? Leaning here on Gouge, he he gives four ways. First way is that Christ governs the church. He governs the church. He is the one that leads or rules or has the final authority. Maybe in our modern vernacular, we would say the buck stops with him. He bears the responsibility. He is the one that ultimately sets the standard and is in charge. He governs the church. He is her head. We call him our king. Another way that he functions as head of the church is that he protects the church. He protects the church. He has a rod and a staff. Amen? He uses those for for our enemies, but also for our correction. He is our good shepherd who guides us to steal steal waters. He, He protects his flock from ravenous wolves, from false shepherds. One that would, ones that would seek to come in and, and devour the flock. So he protects his body, the church, as the head. He also preserves. Preserves. He is the author but also, and also the finisher of our faith. The work that he begins, Philippians 1.6, he is sure and faithful to complete. He keeps those that are his, and no one can snatch them out of his hand. 
And he provides for his body. He bestows upon his beloved the immeasurable riches of his grace. We have in Christ all that is needed for life and godliness. Christ has bestowed sufficiently riches, benefits, and blessings upon His bride, the church. And so the husband is to be a reflection of this headship. And so that means, again, that there is one head in, in, in the marriage. There cannot be two heads. And this one head is to, like Christ, govern. He has the, the rule, if you will, the, the final authority, the final say. Now, sometimes our flesh wants to say that's not fair, that's not right. We live in a, a modern day that is very liberal, right? Everyone wants to be equals, but I think it's helpful for us to see that from the other side. This is an incredible burden to bear that final responsibility and authority. And so he is to govern. Also, he is to protect. He is to protect his wife. The Bible says that the woman is the weaker vessel. It's not an insult. It's just a statement of biblical fact that men are meant to protect and lead and be strong and care for. Thirdly, he is to preserve. As the head, the husband is seek to preserve the state of his family, his wife, to care for her, to look after her to make it his aim, and he is to provide. He is to be a provider as the head of the family. He is to give himself, to labor, to work hard. What does the Bible say? That a man that does not work should not eat. So he is to be a man that takes that burden upon his shoulders, to work hard and labor hard, to be a provider. So the headship of Christ is seen in these ways here in the husband. Secondly, the joyful submission of the church is seen in the wife. The joyful submission of the church is seen in the wife. Let me read those two verses again, or those three verses. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the of the church, his body is himself, its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now this is one of those Bible verses that can so easily die of a thousand qualifications that we want to say, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Now clearly we don't need to read the Bible simplistically and when Paul says that she should submit in everything, he is not including sinful actions. That should really go without saying, right? The, the wife is not to say, well, my husband is a drug dealer and he needs my help. And so I'm called to submit to his authority and leadership and help him in his criminal enterprise, right? That would be foolish. Um, but very clearly, as one modern author says, he does command submission here. And he commands submission not on the basis of shifting cultural sand. And so this is not Paul in his first century lens as a 
as a, as a woman hater, as, as many would like to say, as a chauvinist, that he's just in a, in a male-centric environment, and he just wants men to, to be cruel and rule over women. And notice this. He commands submission not even on the basis of the husband's love. That's not what he says. When he loves you, submit to him. But he roots the command in two unchanging theological principles. Firstly, that the husband is the head of the wife. And second, that as the church submits to Christ, so also should the wife submit in everything to their husbands. So these are two unchangeable realities. The headship of the, hus- of the husband in the created order, as created, this is God's design, and the analogy of Christ and the church, the wife is to freely submit to her husband. Now, submission today is a bad word in our culture. right? We see submission and we immediately think inferiority. We think that that makes one superior than the other, and that makes one less than the other. But the Puritans, at least many in that day, understood that, no, these are just simple biblical roles given to us by God. This is God's design. It's how he's made men and women to cohabitate together. But just in case we think that this is a Uh, and only a modern problem. Remember, Paul's addressing right where the fall hits us most. Just in case we think this is a modern problem, listen to Gouge commenting on this command in the 1600s. He says, against this, command to submit, against this is the disposition of many wives whom ambition has tainted and corrupted within and without. They cannot endure to hear of submission They imagine that they are to be made slaves by it. So that was the thinking in his day as it is in our day. And so how does the church submit to Jesus? How should we, as the church of Jesus Christ, how do we submit to our Lord? I have three ideas here. Firstly, the church submits to Jesus completely. Or it might be better to say unconditionally. As Christians, we ought not, sometimes we do, but we ought not pick and choose various commands that we decide to obey. Amen? We don't weigh the various teachings of Jesus and say, well, I see this one might be profitable and helpful for me, but Lord, you don't really understand my life. This one, don't don't worry about this area. We don't choose one calling over another that the Lord gives us, but all authority has been given to him in heaven and on the earth. So we offer him our complete allegiance. We submit to Christ wholeheartedly, thoroughly, and exhaustively because he is our head and that is our basic duty as his church. So we submit to Christ completely. Secondly, the church is to submit to Christ joyfully, joyfully. Right? We submit to our Lord gladly. Amen? We are called to delight ourselves in the Lord, to love His law, and to delight, as we heard this morning, to delight in the Sabbath day. We are called to, to joyfully come into His presence. And we say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. 
I mean, have you read Psalm 119 recently? Over and over, David is saying, I love your rules. I love your statutes. I love your regulations. It's the last time you, you prayed that to God. I love the Ten Commandments. Lord, I love the Fifth Commandment. I love how you've shattered my pride in the Ninth Commandment. Right? We, we probably don't think like that, but should we? Are those good rules set before us for our good and for His glory? And beloved... What a pitiful picture it would be, and too often is, when a Christian begrudgingly submits to the Lord Jesus. When we gripe about every command and fuss about every duty. When we hate the law of God and push back and kick against the goad and gripe about the Lord's day, gripe about God's call to obedience. What a sad picture it is for a family when a father has to be drug out of bed on the Lord's day or has every excuse why the family doesn't need to go to church today or does whatever they please Saturday night on into the late hours and is exhausted and drug into church. No, we delight in the commands of God because our Lord is worthy. Amen? He is our Lord and He is our Savior. And we express His infinite worth as we gladly, out of love, obey His commandments. As Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And so the church submits joyfully to her Lord. Thirdly, we submit to Christ freely as the church. The type of submission that the Lord is after for His church is a free submission that we offer because we desire to. Yes, He demands it. Make no mistake. He demands and commands our obedience. But the heart matters. And Jesus despises external obedience with a cold heart. And I want to warn you. That if you're here today in this church, externally, physically, your body's here, but your heart is far from the Lord. You've been drugged here by your family. You're here for whatever reason. And your worship is vain, the Bible says, and it is not pleasing to the Lord. Jesus condemned, and the Old Testament condemns those that that, that worship, that went through the motions of the sacrifices. In vain do they worship me. He says, they worship me with their lips. They say the stuff, but their heart is far from me. Jesus calls us to a free submission where we are not coerced, but we come out of our own desire. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 19. His view of God's commandments. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Psalm 19, 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More are they to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. This is not a man that's been coerced to obey the Lord. This is a man that sees the worthiness of God 
and the blessedness of submission. It freely offers it. And the wife is to be a reflection of the church's submission. Her respect for her husband ought to mirror her respect and submission to Jesus. It's a strong statement. We can qualify it a hundred ways. Jesus doesn't sin. Jesus' motives are pure. Jesus never lets me down. Amen, amen, and amen. But the Bible says that the submission of a wife to a husband is to mirror, is to be modeled after the church's submission to Christ. And this submission is not focused on, it's not based upon his actions. We'll get, on, we'll get to the men here shortly. But it's not based upon his actions, right? The call to submission is not a call to say, was he nice enough today? Was he kind enough today? Was he sweet enough, patient enough? Or, or to say, oh, he was rude. I'm, yeah, right. I'm not going to listen to this man. No, the call is to say, I will obey my Lord and do what he says and pray for my husband to tame his tongue. Dr. Beakey, who's, you know, one of the most gentlest men you can hear preach, as he's lecturing on, on this, he talks about um, husband and wife disagreeing. And please don't hear me saying that the husband is, is the tyrant dictator that has all the rule, that's just my say is what it is. I rule with an iron fist. You're a woman. You don't speak. I tell you what happens, and that's the end of it. That's not it at all. And, and honestly, men, we're fools if we don't use the counsel of our helpmates. That's why God has given them to us. But Beaky draws out an illustration where he says, when it gets to the point where husband and wife disagree on a subject, he says the wife is to, is to not say what is the tendency of our fallen flesh, to say, whatever, you don't see it like I do. You're the boss. You make the call. Go for it. I don't care. I don't want to talk about it anymore. You got the authority. You're the head. Go right ahead. He says, no, no, no. The wife is to gladly say, you're responsible. You bear the burden here. The buck stops on you. It's on your shoulders. You will stand before God and give an account of how you led this family. So I gladly yield. In obedience to Christ, I yield to your authority in this home. So the wife is to obey, submit completely. Right? We don't place conditions on our obedience to Jesus, and thus we don't put conditions on our obedience in the home. She's to submit joyfully as Christ's church submits to her Lord. The wife is to be glad-hearted. This is your duty to perform in obedience to Christ and she is to submit freely. It doesn't have to be demanded of her. She doesn't have to be coerced. She does so because she desires to please God. So the submission of the church is seen in the wife. Thirdly, the sanctifying love of Christ is seen in the husband. The sanctifying love of Christ is seen in the husband. Verse 25, Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Honestly, man, this verse ought to make us tremble before the Lord. To love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's a sobering, sobering thought. I I might wish at times that I was called to just submit to someone. But we have to love as Jesus loved. We will all fall short of this command. None of us will do this perfectly. But this is Paul's inspired words for us. So how does Jesus love the church? How has he loved the church? And how does he to this day? Well, firstly, he gave himself while we were yet sinners. He gave himself while we were yet sinners. Beloved, the Lord did not look upon you in your sin and see one worthy to receive salvation. He didn't look upon you and say, this one's better than the rest. This one is almost there. He's mostly righteous. He just needs a little push. He'll be a faithful servant. No, God found you in your rebellion and in your pollution. He knew every vile deed of your heart that you thought you had hidden from those that you love. He knew every sinful action. He knew every lie that you thought you'd got away with. He knows every wicked thought. And He gave Himself. He gave himself, and Gouge draws this out, that he, he descended from heaven. He stepped off of his glory throne, and he took upon himself our nature and became a man. He subjected himself to, to the law in a cursed world. And not only did he subject himself to the law, but he fulfilled it with perfection. And he made himself the subject of many temptations of the devil and of his devices. He took upon himself all of our infirmities, all of our weaknesses and shortcomings. He became a king to govern us, a prophet to instruct us, a priest to make atonement for us, and then he subjected himself to death, the cursed death of the cross. And he made himself an offering, a sacrifice for our sins. And he was buried. And he lay in the grave. And he rose again for the sake of his church. He did this for his bride. Listen to Titus chapter 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another's. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray, slaves to various passions. We were led by the prince of the power of this heir. And we passed our days in malice and envy and nonsense and folly. And he gave himself for those sort of men and women. 
He loved his church by giving himself. Secondly, Jesus loves his church unconditionally. Unconditionally. That is, to say it another way, Jesus loves the church according to grace and not law. Jesus' love for His church flows out of an act of His will, His decretive will. It is His decision. It flows from His person, His being, and His nature, not on the basis of something He sees in the church. I mean, let's be real, beloved. Every single day we sin against God and His covenant. We hate our neighbor in our heart. We, we harbor bitterness with others. We bear a grudge and we, we withhold forgiveness. We love the grace of God, but we refuse it to those around us. We curse with the mouth that God gave us to praise. We use our eyes and our thoughts in unchaste, unholy ways. We toss aside the Bible and communion with God to scroll social media to watch television and to play games. We fail to love Him as He deserves. We complain and whine about the things that we don't have and we grumble with jealousy about the things that everyone else has. When our day is difficult and challenging, we act as children and throw a fit and lack gratitude. We're prideful and arrogant and haughty. We steal the glory of God as we take praise for the things that He's clearly given us. We pray and forget to give Him thanks when He answers those very prayers. We offer to God half-hearted repentance for the sins that we commit every day. We say we want to change, and yet we go back to the same old patterns over and over again. But He says, whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. He says, I will never cast out leave you, nor forsake you. His love, beloved, is not conditioned on your actions. It is not conditioned on your behavior. His love is conditioned upon His covenant of grace, His promise to keep you. He loves the church without condition. And thirdly, He loves the church for the purpose of her sanctification. He died the death of the cross to cleanse His bride that she might be presented as a pure virgin on that day. He gave Himself that we might be clean. And He gives Himself. He continues in this work as the church's prophet. Daily He washes and renews and cleanses His bride. He washes her with His Word. He sends His Spirit that she might be empowered for service. He pleads the merits of His own righteousness to the Father. He appeals on behalf of the church because He loves her. And He desires on that day to present her as a spotless lamb without blemish. Jesus delights in His beloved. He died for her purity and gave all for her holiness. And the husband is to reflect the love of Christ. God help us. How does the husband reflect the love of Christ? Well, he gives himself. He gives himself. Listen to the words. One of the greatest 
in my opinion, thinkers, writers on pastoral theology today, Fred Malone. He says, when a husband begins to understand that Jesus bore his soul on his heart every step he took to the cross, and that he bore this sinful husband's every sin in his body on the cross, particularly something happens in his heart. He understands the patient and determined love of Jesus Christ for his own particular sinful soul. He realizes how much Jesus sacrificed of himself for an undeserving sinful man. He realizes that he must love his chosen wife particularly, determined to set his love upon her, patient with her in her sins. He must be determined then to deny self, to take up the cross of self-denial, to sacrifice himself of any comfort or wish or expectation or demands in order to bring his wife to the redeeming grace of God in Christ. If she be an unbeliever, if she be a Christian wife, to bring her to faithful obedience to God. How can she fully understand the loving, particular redemption of Christ if she does not see that particular self-denying, sacrificial love in her own husband? The planned, particular, effectual redemption of Jesus shows a husband how to sacrifice his own desires for the benefit of his wife no matter what she does. Let those last words sink in. No matter what she does. The second point then, the husband loves the wife unconditionally. He loves her not according to law, but according to grace. His love is not merited by his wife's behavior. Now, I might even go so far to say, and I'm, this is me here, that a marriage is a covenant of grace. It's not a covenant of works. It's not based upon law-keeping, obedience. It's based upon promise. It's based upon a commitment before God. His love for his wife is not on the basis of her behavior or her actions. It's not on the basis of her good or poor attitude today, on how close or how distant husband and wife might feel in the moment. It's not based upon how mature or immature she may be in dealing with her own sin. But he loves his bride as an act of his will. It is a love that is conditioned upon nothing because Christ has loved him unconditionally. Again, Fred Malone. He says, A grace-saturated husband cannot quit loving, praying for, and serving his wife because of her sins, simply because God did not quit on him before he drew himself, drew him to himself, and sovereignly changed his stubborn heart. When she sins, he forgives. When she is unaffectionate, he is affectionate. When she is thoughtless, he is thoughtful. When she is impatient, he is patient. When she speaks unkindly, he speaks kindly. When she sins, he forgives while praying for her. He refuses to let her sins condition his love and grace toward her. Because love is patient and love is kind. And love is the fulfilling of the law under grace. And thirdly, he loves his bride for the purpose of her sanctification. Like Jesus, the husband 
is to wash the wife in the water of the word. He is to make this his priority, his burden. I think it's right to say biblically that the husband is to be the key sanctifying influence in the life of his wife. Not the local pastor, not the podcast ministry that she loves, not the preacher on YouTube, but the man that's been called to shepherd her soul. He's been called to make this his aim, to die to himself, his own desires, to see his wife grow in sanctified maturity in the Lord. So the sanctifying love of Christ is reflected in the husband. Fourthly, the church's joyful receiving of the word is seen in the wife. And this is, I think, more of an implication, but I think you'll see it there. Again, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Remember, we want to start with Christ and the church, not with the husband and the wife. Do you understand what Paul's saying here? And the church delights in the word of God. Amen. The church delights in the means of grace. The church delights in the kind instruction and correction of her Lord. She trusts him. The church does. She knows that her Lord desires her best. That he desires, though his word cuts and at times is hard and difficult, he desires to sanctify her with his truth. And so the church of Jesus Christ happily receives the ministry of her Lord. She longs for the Lord's day. Beloved, do you long for the Lord's day? Do you long for the gathered assembly? When all of that other stuff Get set aside. Do you long to hear from your covenant head? To feast at his table and enjoy sweet communion with him? The wife is to be a model of this. A picture of this. Ladies, I encourage you. We'll get more into these things. This is just high level. I encourage you to be open to the instruction and discipleship of your husband. Be patient with him. If he's growing in this area... Don't take this as an opportunity to nag him or to belittle him. Ladies, you have much power in the tongue to emasculate and belittle your husband and tear him to shreds. And when he asked to, to pray, to read the word, to open some book that he wants to read with you, he does so for the good of both of your souls and in obedience to his Lord. And like the church receives the ministry of Christ, you ought to be glad to come under the shepherding of your husband. We got to be patient with one another. This road goes both ways. But, but listen to Hebrews 13, 17. I think, it may, I think there's application here. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will, who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. That would be of no advantage to you. And finally, fifthly, union between Christ and the church is seen in the one flesh union of husband 
and wife. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, what does Paul Paul do here? He argues from the standpoint of Christ the head, and his care and provision for his body, the church. And he says that Jesus nourishes and cherishes his bride, his body. She is his purchased possession for which he shed his own blood. And Guj goes on this long explanation of how Christ has, has nourished and cherished his body. He goes back all the way to the wilderness generation. And he says, Christ fed his church in the wilderness, Israel. When they were famished and starving, he fed them, as we heard just this morning, with heavenly bread, manna from heaven. When they were dehydrated and thirsting and on the cusp of of death even, he, he opened up a fount from the rock and gave them drink to give them life. He even oversaw that their clothes were kept from wearing out. Their sandals were preserved, those 40 years. And then he gave them a land, a place to dwell, and he brought them into that place that was flowing with milk and honey. And today he feeds and sustains his church with his own flesh and blood. He clothes his church with his own righteousness. He provides food and clothing as he covers the lilies of the field. He meets our spiritual needs. He indwells us and empowers us with His own Spirit. He preserves us and keeps us to the end. He cares for His body, the church, because we are one with Him. She is united to Him and He to her. We are co-heirs with Christ, spiritually and mystically united to Him. He is the head and we are His members And thus, as his own body, he cherishes and nourishes his body. And what man doesn't care for his own flesh? What man doesn't think about the the growling in his stomach and say, I'm going to eat soon. What should I have? What should I have for dinner tonight? What's going to happen tomorrow? We think about ourselves, what we need. It's natural for us. And the one, Paul says, that loves his wife treats her as his own body because the two have become one flesh. They are no longer two units, two individuals, but they are now one. The man has been called, the woman has been called to leave father and mother and to cleave to one wife and one husband. And this cleaving is consummated in the one flesh union. And there, together, they become one. One heart, one mind, one spirit, striving and growing together. And as they do so rightly, by the grace of God, Paul says this mystery is profound. It is a reflection of Christ in the church. What a beautiful picture there. 
of our union with Jesus, seen in the covenant of marriage. And then Paul sort of wraps up his whole argument. He, he sums up the whole thing with that last verse. Husband, love your wife. Wife, respect your husband. He puts his finger on what is often the source of many challenges in our marriages. What a privilege here. Not a burden. What a privilege here to be a reflection of Christ and the gospel through obedience. Beloved, I pray, whether you're married, have been married, one day hope to be married, I pray for those especially that are right now performing the duties of obedience in a marriage, that this is the lens that you will view these things through. As you think about the things God calls you to do, what your daily calling is to die to yourself, men, to love your wife, ladies, to submit when you don't disagree or don't want to or he's a jerk, that we would see this through the lens of Christ and through the lens of his purchased church. I pray that this would completely reorient our view of marriage, our view of Duties. Think of duties as a good word. Things that we do for the glory of God. So again, if you one day, Lord willing, hope to be married, I encourage you to think deeply on these things now. If you're young, think deeply on these things now. Prepare your soul and your life. I can set you up with many adults in here that will tell you how they learned all of this on the fly and had to undo bad patterns and behaviors because... There was not a desire to honor Christ from the beginning. But having these things laid down is such a benefit for you. But also, again, for the members here and for the Christians here, as we're called to care for the body of Christ, we've taken vows to pray for one another. We've taken vows to carry a burden for all the members of this church. And this church, and this city, and this nation will only be as strong as the household's begins in the home, right? Goosh said, as I mentioned last week, that the home is a nursery for the commonwealth and for the church. And I was wrong in what he meant. He's not speaking about a preschool. He's speaking about a nursery where you go and buy plants and trees. And the idea there is that in the nursery, seeds are germinated, plants are grown till they're strong enough to transport and to sell, and they're sent off somewhere else. And the home is a nursery where seeds are germinated. Children are produced by the, by the blessing of God. And they are raised up. And they are matured. And they are grown for the glory of God. And then they're sent out. And thus, the state of the church and the state of the commonwealth, the nation, begins and is founded in the home. And if we fail in the home, we will fail as a nation. So let the Reformation begin here, beloved, in the, in the household. I was going through my sermon notes from a couple years ago. This is not in my notes. And um, we went through some of this stuff a couple years ago. And it was formative. It was formative for me very much, rethinking through many things in a much more biblical lens. But I saw something that I wrote in the beginning of a sermon as we were driving home from church together, maybe from Sunday evening together. And I was just really feeling discouraged at how much I had fallen short of God's commands, 
of how high and lofty these things are and how, and how pitiful in so many ways that my husbanding could measure up. And I was just sort of lamenting the regret with my wife, and she said, no, no, no. She said, let that regret and that repentance lead to reformation now. As Paul says, we, we don't look back and wallow in the mistakes. We look forward and press on to the price. And so again, I said this two years ago. I say it again. Beloved, repent with me. I don't stand here as the man that has all the answers. But I stand here as a man who desires reformation and wants to lead this church to have biblical, godly homes. They don't look like what the world says our homes should look like. That reject the world's ideals for the glory of God and the good of the souls in our care. Let's pray. Our Father, you are...